0: What's up, Rooftop? Happy Valentine's Day. Look at your spouse if you're married. Say, Happy Valentine's Day. Say, I love you, baby. Give them a kiss. If you're single, how many single people we got up in here? Raise your hand. Go raise your hand. Look around, see what you're working with. It's all right. Today could be the day. Amen. In the name of Jesus. Come on, somebody. Well, my name is Skylar Val. I'm the pastor of Youth and Young Adults here at Rooftop Church. So as we dive into the message, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're throwing a party. And you're throwing not just any party. You're throwing a huge party for a guest of honor. All right, are you thinking about it? You're throwing this big party, and you've made all of these preparations You've waited, excited, expectant. You've got the food all laid out. You've got a great spread. You've got the balloons blown up, and the the room looks great. You've jotted your T's, dotted your I's, made all the final preparations. The day comes. You're ready to throw this party for this guest of honor. You sent out invitations. Everybody RSVP'd, and everybody who RSVP'd showed up. I know, shocking. They all showed up. They're all there. They're ready to go. And you guys are waiting. And the moment's coming that your guest of honor is going to arrive through the door. And again, everything's ready. The music, the dancing. And then everybody stops. Everybody crouches down. And they're hiding. And they're getting ready to yell, surprise! Then the moment comes. And the person's supposed to come through the door. Everybody's crouched down. And the moment's here. And everybody's ready. And everybody's waiting. And... Nobody nobody shows up. Nobody comes through the door. And so we're going to look at something that happened to God's people very similar to that where they're excited and they're expectant and they're awaiting something and it doesn't come. So we are currently in week 24 of our sermon series called Isaiah for Today, where we are spending 10 months, 10 months, you heard right, going through the writings of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was an 8th century Hebrew prophet who lived in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period, meaning about 800 years before Jesus. And he spoke on behalf of God to the leaders of Jerusalem and to Judah. And he warned them that if they persisted in their wicked ways, that God was going to use the kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon to judge them for all of their evil deeds. And so in order to better understand and better study Isaiah, what we've done is we've broken up the series into some smaller chunks or sections, this one being called, What Happened? And so the middle section of the book of Isaiah tells us um, the story of Judah, the nation of Judah. God protects them, but then they're destroyed and they're taken into exile. Eventually, though, God brings them back. During this series, we've been looking at that portion of the book. The book of Isaiah is full of poetry and prophecy, but it's also full of some really interesting history. And I'm going to apologize in advance. This is the splash zone. If I'm spitting a little bit, just keep your masks on. And so as we jump in, just to make sure that we're all on the same page, we've got a general timeline. And that's just going to, again, make sure that we are all on the same page here together. I talked to my mom. I'm a mama's boy. I give my mom my sermon before. um, I always preach. I always tell her what is happening, what I'm going to be talking about. And she said, Skylar, please don't bore them with all of that history. And so I cut out like two pages of history. So you can thank my mom for that. Yeah. Yeah. Give my mom a hand. That's all right. Hey, mom. I love you. She's watching online. That's that's not my mom, but she's on the camera. Uh, So Judah has resisted Assyria, but they could not resist the nation of Babylon. Jerusalem then falls, and the temple is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. God's people are then carried to exile in Babylon where they spend what Matt likes to call 70 years in divine timeout. But eventually Babylon is destroyed by Cyrus the Great of Persia. And then Cyrus allows God's people to return to Jerusalem is what we talked about last week, Pastor Matt, gave a great message. If you haven't seen that, head to our YouTube channel and watch that. But then they, uh, Cyrus commissions, he doesn't just send them back, he commissions them to go and rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning, is rebuilding the temple. So with that in mind, we're going to dive into our text for today. Just be warned, it is a lot, but we're going to get through that together. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 44, and we're going to start at verse 24. You got a Bible? Who's got a Bible? Hold it up. Let me see. Let me see who's spiritual. Just kidding. (laughs) Front row people right here. Amen. Isaiah 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars. And makes fools of diviners who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep... Be dry, I will dry up your rivers. And who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Jump into chapter 25 verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I... The Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I want to skip down to verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city, set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. That's a lot. I am sweating just reading that. That was so much stuff. So what is going on in this passage? Isaiah here is speaking on behalf of God. And God is making it known that although these people will be taken from their home, although things will get bleak, they will be held captive in the land of Babylon, God is letting them know that the story is not over for them. He's telling them that although things get bad. Ultimately, he is still in control. And for his people's sake, he is going to release them and send them back to Jerusalem. And for his sake, the people will rebuild the temple. And God is saying, and just for kicks, I'm going to anoint a pagan king to accomplish these things. This passage of scripture is actually an extremely accurate and amazing prophecy. Isaiah is prophesying here That God will raise up a man who would not be born for nearly 200 more years. And he's going to anoint him to subdue the nations and conquer the world power of the day Babylon. And this man is going to set the Jewish people free. And he's not going to do it for price or reward. He's going to do it just because God has said it's going to happen. And he's not only going to send them back home, but he's going to send them with the resources to build it. And not only does he predict all of this nearly 200 years before this man is born, he actually names him Cyrus. And Cyrus was uh, a bad dude, as theologians like to say. Herodotus, a Greek historian, said of Cyrus he vanquished whatever country soever he invaded. And after he conquered Mesopotamia, he set his sights on another nation, Babylon, and he took Babylon with ease. And God opened the gates of the city of Babylon for Cyrus, and he put it in writing nearly 200 years before it actually came to pass. Why? He did all of this so that there is no mistake that this was God's doing. God told the people what would happen, what his plan was, how he was going to execute it all before it actually happened, 200 years before it took place. God is making it abundantly clear and undeniable that he is in control. And not only is he in control, he is for his people. Cyrus is not the hero, Cyrus is only a hand, or excuse me, an instrument in the hand of God who God is using to orchestrate God's purposes. So after 70 years of divine timeout, God is breaking his people free from their captivity. And God is making it clear that he did this. God is making it clear that as great as Cyrus is, Cyrus is only great because God has ordained him to be great for his purposes, for his people. So in Ezra chapter 1, we see Cyrus do exactly as God said he would do 200 years before. He releases the exiles and he gives them back all the treasures that Nebuchadnezzar stole. All the gold, all the silver, all the stuff. He returns what's stolen and then he commissions them and it says, go and rebuild the house of the Lord just as... Isaiah had predicted. This was the moment that they have all been waiting for. So some of God's people returned to Jerusalem in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which were originally one book. We read of some people who went about actually going to organize the construction of the temple. But first, I want to briefly explain why the temple is so important The temple was a big, beautiful building. King David designed it, but his son Solomon was actually the one who went about constructing the temple. And the people believed that this was the dwelling place of God. It was the place on earth that overlaps with heaven. It is immensely important to God's people. The temple is where God lives and where God rules his creation. So in Genesis, we meet two people. Anybody know their names? Adam and Eve. and Eve. And they live in a garden, and they live with God, and God dwells with them. They live in God's presence. So Eden was a sort of temple. And the temple Solomon builds is actually designed to look like the Garden of Eden. It's got gold flowers and the menorah symbolizes the tree of life. It is the place where God dwells with his people. I cannot stress enough how important the temple is, how important it is for the people to connect with God and how important it is for them to be in God's presence. It is imperative. But like in the garden, the people of Jerusalem and Judah feel that they can rule better than God, and so they rebel against him. And like the people of Judah and Jerusalem, or excuse me, and like Adam and Eve, the people of Judah and Jerusalem are exiled from God's presence. They are banished from the garden, and then they are banished from Jerusalem, and they are taken to Babylon, and this is why this moment where Cyrus decrees that they may return home and rebuild their temple is so important. In their minds, they have been exiled from God's presence for 70 years. They have been in divine timeout for 70 years, and God finally allows them to return home. And the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, they've been talking about a new temple and a new priesthood that'll that'll come. And the people believed this was it. This was their time to shine. So in the book of Ezra, we read of a guy named Zerubbabel. Look at your neighbor and say Zerubbabel. (laughs) Zerubbabel, along with some other returned exiles, they go and rebuild the temple. And they're going to dedicate it to God. Their guest of honor. And this has happened two other times in the Bible where God's people have um, ordained or designated or dedicated the temple or the tabernacle to God. The first time is in Leviticus, my favorite book, Leviticus, just kidding. And in Leviticus, when this happens, it says fire falls from heaven, like literal fire, falls from heaven, and the people know that God is with them. The next time this happens when Solomon builds the temple is in First Kings, and it says a cloud descends into the temple, a glory cloud of God's presence, and God's presence is so thick in the room, the cloud is so thick that people can't even see each other. It says they can't minister to the people because the cloud is so thick. It is undeniable that God's presence was with them. And after the destruction of the temple, after years of exile, the people begin to rebuild their temple. And the author of Ezra tells us the priests were decked out in their nice clothes. All the invited guests are there. The food is laid out. The music's popping. Everybody's having a great time. Everybody's excited. Everybody's expectant for the guest of honor to arrive. And it says that they're singing, uh, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. Everybody's waiting. Everybody's ready. And the moment comes where the guest of honor is supposed to arrive. And... He doesn't show up. Nothing happens. Fire doesn't fall from heaven. There is no cloud. Nothing happens. Ezra chapter 3 tells us that the elders, the people who had seen the temple and seen uh, God's presence, it says they, they wept loudly because this was nothing like they had, had seen before, and it was nothing like they had hoped Just a building. Um, And they wondered, was this really what God wanted? Was this really what Isaiah was talking about? The prophets told of a day where God would create a new temple with a new priesthood and God's presence would be with them and fill all of creation, and they built the temple. But it was very evident. This was not what God was talking about. The people realized that they had a big building, but they were still waiting for the real thing. They're still waiting for the real temple. So fast forward with me in history about 500 years when we meet a man and he makes some very outrageous claims and he claims that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world. But he didn't work at the temple. Uh, uh, He wasn't a priest. He was actually just a carpenter. But he spoke and he said, I speak on behalf of God. And he spoke on behalf of God to the people. And he claimed that God's rule and reign and presence would be with the people now because of him. He was claiming to be the place where God's Spirit dwelled, where heaven met earth, the true temple. And this new temple that he was building was not just for some people. His new temple was, was for everybody from all walks of life, every tribe, nation, and tongue. He didn't build any wall to keep people out. It's not a political statement. In Nehemiah, they were trying to build a wall to keep people out so that they could make Jerusalem <clears throat> great again. And uh, <clears throat> But he didn't build a wall to keep anybody out, but rather he invited them all to join in on what he was doing. And this man was... Any guesses? This man was Jesus. And he made a claim that because of his life, death, and resurrection, that God's spirit would now dwell with each of his followers. So after his death... Resurrection, he didn't stay dead. Come on, somebody. Three days later, he resurrected. And just before his ascension into heaven, his disciples ask him a question that likely echoes the question of the people that we covered in in Ezra and Nehemiah. And they say to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Are we finally going to get to build this temple? God's people are still waiting to be set free. It's no longer the Babylonians oppressing them, but it is now the Romans. And they are thinking, okay, our boy, Jesus, he just rose from the grave. Now's the time. Our time to shine. He's going to build a temple and then we're going to be elevated and thrust onto the world stage as one of the powers, powerful nations of the day. And Jesus says, slow down, whoa. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So let's jump down to Acts chapter 2. I'm pretty charismatic, so this is one of my favorite books. Come on, somebody. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, the disciples. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And dividing tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they are filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Don't worry, I'm not going to be talking about speaking in tongues today. But what happened here? The disciples asked if God if, if Israel's kingdom is going to be restored. And Jesus' response is: you are going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses, not just here in Jerusalem, but all over the world. And then it says, fire falls from heaven into the upper room. God's spirit then dwells with the people. It says they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the disciples in that moment become the temples of God. And this is God's picture for the church for us today. Isaiah told of the day that God would rebuild a new Jerusalem and a new temple and he wasn't talking about bricks and he wasn't talking about stones. Peter says, you, like living stones, are being built into what? A spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. We are living stones Building the temple for God's spirit to dwell with all people in all of God's creation. And I want you to know as you walk out of here today, if you are a born again believer, you have the Holy Spirit within you and we are the temple. You are the temple. Don't believe me. That's okay. Ephesians 2, 17 through 22 says this. Maybe you'll believe Paul. And he Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near for through him Jesus we have both we both have access in one spirit to the Father so then you are no longer strangers and exiles but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord, in him, you. You are also being built into what? A dwelling place for God by the spirit. God is building a temple and he's using you in Christ Jesus as the cornerstone we you and I are being built together into a dwelling place for God's spirit and you may be thinking me as a temple of God no way and when you look at your life you may see flaws And insecurities and imperfections and the sin that exists in your heart. And you may begin to listen and believe the enemy who says that God can't use you. But I want to tell you if you are a born again believer, that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. As a born again believer, you are no longer a sinner, but a saint. Amen. And the Spirit of the living God is in you, spurring you on to continue to do the work of Jesus Christ. So, what does this mean for us that we are the temple? Uh, surprising, I know I've got three points, but you didn't see that coming. Number one, be sent. Number two, be together. And number three, be holy. Number one, be sent. Once we become Christians and followers of Jesus, we become disciples of Jesus Christ. And if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are on a mission. You have been commissioned to go out and be the temple with legs. You are a dwelling place of God in a lost and broken world. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew twenty-eight sixteen 16-20 that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. A few weeks ago, uh, in here on a Monday night, we had a young adults worship night, and I got a chance to talk to some of our young adults here. And I said, unlike popular belief, this is not called the great suggestion. This was not Jesus suggesting, hey, if you feel like it, maybe if you get all your ducks in a row, please potentially go out and make some disciples, maybe... I mean, if you feel like it. It's not the great suggestion. It is the great commission. You are commissioned to be a light to the nations, a city on a hill, God's people, in a lost and broken world, the temple of the Lord God Almighty. I remember when I first realized this. I was 18. I was uh, washing dishes at a bar. And uh, I was the only Christian that worked there. And, and, and so I had just gotten saved. I knew John 3.16. That was the only Bible verse that I knew. I still have it memorized. Don't be intimidated. I'm a pastor. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so that's the only Bible verse I had memorized. But I just was so excited to tell people about what Jesus had done in my life, what Jesus had done for me. He'd given me a new heart. He'd given me a new life. He'd given me a new purpose. I just saw the whole world different. And I just wanted to tell everybody about it. Um, And one evening I got a chance to talk to a guy there. Um, He was 25, um, the same age I am now, which is crazy to think about. And I was 18 and we're just sitting there chatting and it's after a late shift. It's about one in the morning and we go outside, we're throwing the trash out. So it's 1 a.m. behind a bar in an alleyway by a dumpster. He's got a beer in his hand and we just get to sit there and we talk about Jesus and he shares his story a story of lots of loss and heartbreak and I just got to sit and listen with him and and then I got to pray with him and he accepted Jesus into his heart and I was like mind blown because I'm like God was here. It's 1 a.m. behind a bar by a dumpster. This guy's got a beer in his hand in Murray, Kentucky. And heaven met earth in that moment. And his eternity was forever changed. Not because there was a priest that mediated in the temple between he and God. But because there was a dishwasher telling him about the gospel. And I share that story not to pat myself on the back. I want to tell the story because if God can use a broken, sinful person like me to do that, I can assure you that he can use you too. We are the temple. Number one, be sent. Number two, be together. We are the temples of God. God is building his household and he's using us. Fitting us in brick by brick so that the whole world will know that he is God. This is not a solo sport how many of y'all know that person that says and I'm not picking on you I'm spiritual but I don't, I don't go to church I'm a Christian but I don't go to John do that church thing my relationship with God is between me and God it's none of your business I don't go to church how many you all know that person nobody cool just kidding I see some nods so do you know what that makes that person? Not my words, Peter and Paul's words. You know what that makes that person? Not a bucket, um, but a brick. He says, We're living bricks, we're living stones. But if you're one of those people that, well, I'm a Christian, I don't go to church, cool. You're a brick. We'll get us a brick deal. I mean, you can like stub your toe on it. I don't know. Just one by itself doesn't do a whole lot of good. But when a brick is joined with another brick, huh, starts to build something. And perhaps this is the uh, single mom here at rooftop with so much tenacity and courage and boldness. And they could come and, and come alongside some young woman who's going through a similar trial here at the church. And, and this is the person who's retired. They've got so much wisdom and so much experience and so much care in their heart that they want to show up to church and help maintenance and help build an office for a youth pastor for just because they're kind and nice and they want to use their talents and abilities to glorify God. This is the high school student who gives up their Wednesday nights to come and, and practice worship leading on Sunday nights. They give up their Sunday nights. They give up so much time and effort. Currently, one's behind the camera right now. And oftentimes, they're behind the cameras and they're in the, uh, the director role orchestrating service that the people at home can see what's going on here. They can still feel a part of the church. They are people in the tech booth right now operating the lights and sounds so that we can do all of these things and have all these church. This is the person who gets here early on Sunday mornings just so they can greet you with a smile whenever you walk in the door. And they get here early and they make coffee that you can have hot coffee when you come in from the cold. Then have a good experience here at Rooftop Church. All of these people, brick by brick, they come together building what the designer intended the temple to be, the local church. Rooftop. All of these people coming together brick by brick, playing their role, playing their part, using their gifts, talents, and abilities, coming together to be the temple, to be the local church, or as Paul says, to be one body, one team. And we need you in the game. To play your part so that others in the world can see God's love, mercy, compassion, and grace. So my question for you today is, are you in the wall? Are you in on what God is building here at Rooftop Church? Are you serving the homeless? Are you serving the youth? Are you serving in in rooftops? God bless you if you are. Kids ministry. God, come on somebody. Pray for those people. Are you in on what God's doing brick by brick, building the temple arm in arm with your believers in Christ, pushing back the gates of hell in this lost and broken world? Or are you just one brick because we need you and we're better together? And if you want to get plugged in, there's lots of ways that you can do that. I encourage you to come to our Next Steps meeting on Saturday, February 20th. If you can't attend that, please send an email to Pastor Jeremy. Or please send an email to me, and I will get you plugged in at what God is doing here at Rooftop Church. We've got a growing, thriving youth ministry, and we need what you bring to the table. Number three, be holy. Number three, be holy. As God's temple, we are called to be holy. Be holy for I am holy. This is a command that I found nine times in the Bible this week. Too often times, we pursue our own happiness first and foremost. But what God wants us to pursue first and foremost is holiness. Holiness. This is harder than it sounds, I know. Just turn on uh, the TV or social media and you un- bomb- are bombarded with all kinds of unholiness. But 1 Peter 1.15 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Peter is quoting Leviticus. Holy in this context means blameless, consecrated, and set apart. God desires that we not be like the rest of the world, but that we be set apart, that we be holy so that others can see God's holiness. The people in your life, your loved ones, your family, and your friends who are unchurched, they may never read that Bible verse that you send them. They may never read that devotion or that Christian book that you get them every year on their birthday or for Christmas. But they are looking at your life. So my question is, are you holy as your heavenly Father is holy? And perhaps you answered no. And you may think that there is no way like that you can be holy like God is holy. And you're right. On our own, in our own strength, we cannot. But because of Jesus, we can. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, the Apostle Paul says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And we are sinful people and we could never on our own be holy like God is holy. But because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we accept the sacrifice that he made for us. We are reconciled to God. And it says we are presented holy and blameless. Jesus came to earth. He lived a sinless, perfect life, fulfilling the law, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves because of his immense love. Not to condemn us, but to save us. And when God looks down on us, he doesn't see our sin, and he doesn't see our imperfections, but because of Jesus' work on the cross, when God looks down on us, he sees us holy and blameless because of his son. Let's pray. Jesus thank you so much for your grace and for your love and for your mercy and thank you so much that because of Jesus' work on the cross that when you look down on us if we've accepted that sacrifice we are not sinful and we are not defined by our mistakes and our failures but we are defined by you and your love for us and because of Jesus' work on the cross, we are saved and we are set free. And we are given new life. And we're given a mission and a purpose to go out and be the temple. And Lord, if there's anybody in here who's a born-again believer and just struggling with that, Lord, I ask that you would just soften their heart and remind them that they are called, they are commissioned, and they are so significant, and they have so much purpose. And Lord, if there's anybody in here that doesn't know you, Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would soften their heart and that they would look to you as their father in heaven who loves them so much, so much that you're willing to send your son for us. We love you so much. Thank you, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.